Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. I'm joined today by a co-host, my colleague Dan Rasher. He's a sports economist who leads our master's program in sport management here at USF and has consulted extensively for a range of businesses in sports. Uh, and the reason I brought him on is because our guest today, uh, Paul Oyer, has written a new book about sport economics. Uh, Paul is the uh, Marion Rankin Van Anda Entrepreneurial Professor and Professor of Economics at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. His academic research is on the economics of organizations, including human resource practices. Um, But he's also branched out into writing fun books that help show how the tools of economics can be applied to understanding other important areas like online dating in an earlier book and sports in the most recent one. So today we're going to talk about his newest book called An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away $580 Million and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sports. Paul, welcome. Glad we could have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So um, first, why don't you tell us why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, so I'm I'm a big believer that economics is everywhere and um, people don't appreciate that enough, uh, and that, that you can learn a lot about the world if you see how it's being driven by economics. And I want, I, I feel like teaching that in a way that's more relatable is helpful for a lot of people. So as you mentioned, I did something earlier with online dating. And then um, my son was in college, I think, at the time when I started this project, and he helped and it was also like, you know, a good way, given my shared interests with him in sports to get uh, to work with him. So he helped a lot with some of the initial drafting and research and so forth. So I just thought it was. And if you look, I don't know, I'm guessing um, you can relate to this at, at, uh, at your school, especially given especially given your interest. Dan. there's so many students writing econ- economics theses that want to do sports topics because it's just a very relatable way to study the broader issues in economics. 
Yeah, I, I'm approached by students not only from USF, but from other schools that, that are majoring in economics or maybe some aspect of business. And they're not studying sports per se, but then they want to write a paper for a course or even their, their senior thesis. So and that's really fun because it's fun for me to be able to give them all this information and, and talk to them about, about their topics and sort of open their mind to the whole concept of studying the sports industry through economics. On the, on the web page I created for the book, I have actually um, thesis topics for each chat to go with each chapter. So uh, it's a way to feed, hopefully uh, a few students can get some motivation for what they could do. Oh, great. Yeah, that's definitely always a um, you know, challenge to, to get people to understand what economics is about. I think, you know, we get kind of a constant flow of, you know, aspiring business majors who, you know, and then we show them supply and demand diagrams usually. And like, and, you know, the ones who are in business, like, okay, you know, supply and demand, I get that. And then the, the people who have, who have other interests, um, you know, or don't, don't see themselves going into finance or aren't really sure yet, kind of, I think it's often, uh, it's hard for them to get engaged with uh, kind of our standard intro material. And a lot of people are obviously working on that at the textbook level, but it's great to have, you know, the more books are out there that just people might just pick up and start reading and think, you know, Hey, this is cool. Or like talk to, talk to their kid about a cool story they read and then get them excited about economics is, is really, really amazing. Yeah. That's the hope. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so to, to start off, I guess, um, I've had, and actually you mentioned, you know, your son, uh, worked on this a little bit with you too, but so I've had a couple of other economists, uh, come on the show who also, who, who write about raising children. Um, so maybe to, to continue that theme slightly, uh, why don't you tell us about, uh, the child rearing advice that economics gives you from this book? So how do I turn my kid into a pro athlete? Well, you don't, um, you know, I, I haven't seen your kids, Peter, maybe they're well on their, maybe they're going to be amazing. Uh, well, honestly, athletes. I don't have the genetic endowment for that, I think, but, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, having seen, yeah, I'm not t- totally surprised, but you never know. But, um, I think the answer is you don't. And so you, you know, the, the first chapter is about, is about youth sports. And, um, I think you can just think of youth sports as the, uh, as an economist would, there's two ways to think about it. There's um, consumption and investment, right? And so if you just think about your kids' sports, you should be thinking consumption because the invest, there's just very little evidence that the investment side would ever pay off. So, for example, there's some thinking that, oh, people who take part in childhood sports learn certain skills that pay off in the labor market. That may be true, but if you go through the literature on that, it's just, there's not very, it, the, the evidence is underwhelming. It's suggestive, but it's not overwhelming that sports is going to make you a better, you know, something later on in life. Now, there are exam- certainly anecdotes of people through, through sports have done well, both um, in and outside of sports making money. There's... Um, you know, hockey teams and lacrosse teams from colleges that are known for getting each other jobs on Wall Street, things like that. But in general, the returns to investing in your kids' childhood sports should be about having fun and uh, enjoying it, not about the long-term investment. Now, I then at the in the, but having said that, there are exceptions. So we were joking about you know your um, your personal 
endowment for sports skills, Peter. And, you know, most of us, our kids are unlikely to um, be in any predictable way great athletes. But there are some exceptions. And one that I focus on in the book is Kevin Durant. If you're six feet eight by the time you're 13 years old and you're coordinated and um and you're someone like Kevin Durant who comes from pretty humble background where given the state of the labor market for people from, you know, given, given, the, given the fact that um, people from underprivileged backgrounds in, in the U.S. at least don't have a great recent history of moving up the economic ladder, boy, sports starts to look like a pretty good outcome as a possibility because the fraction of people who are six feet eight when they're 13 who then go on to professional sports careers is actually quite high. So there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, play sports, have your kid play sports when they're a kid because it's fun, not because they're uh, gonna, there's gonna be any payoff down the line. Dude, if I could jump in, do you think that there are, uh, I noticed, and that was fascinating to me, I, the Kevin Durant example in your chapter is, is real interesting. Um, and it was fascinating that there was a marker like height that sort of you could see, hey, this this person's really tall, and as you said, they're they're athletic and so forth. And so you know there is potentially a reason for them to invest some of their time into sports. And I wondered if you thought there were other markers like that in other for other sports. Um, and I thought of my town, my my boys play basketball and, and soccer, and their average height, and you know they're. There's nothing, nothing about those two sports. Height isn't necessarily that important, although it seems like baseball players seem to be getting taller, at least pitchers. But our, our town seems to produce an outsized number of water polo players. So, I mean, when I read your other chapter, and maybe we'll talk a bit about that, about where players come from, lots of players from our local high school here in the East Bay of, of, of San Francisco um, play water polo. I mean, lots of kids going to play water polo. And, and I thought, well, what, is there a marker that a parent or a kid would know about being good at water polo? And I look at these kids, and sure, they're big, strong kids. I think that comes from playing water polo somewhat. But I didn't see any markers for them. And I just wondered if you had sort of thought about this outside of a basketball sport. I think I think basketball is pretty exceptional because this, like, what real standout physical characteristic that, that is highly, highly correlated with, um, you know, the fraction of seven feet men who end up in the NBA is, you know, I, I forget, I've seen the number, and it's an estimate, but you know, it's, it's like a third or something like that. And the, and many of the rest end up earning a living playing basketball overseas or something. That is, as far as I can tell, pretty much um, a unique marker. So, you know, when you think about other groups of people who become professional athletes, um, people from the, if you look at Major League Baseball, it's full of people who grew up in the Dominican Republic. But I think that for everyone who's in the major leagues, there are thousands who never made a dime playing baseball. And when they were 16 years old, it was very hard to tell the um, ones who would go on to be major leaguers from those who were not. Because there's, you know, you, you, you've probably all, both seen this in, you know, your, the water polo is a good example. I mean, kids who, 
people who are really great at sports but never going to make a dime from it are still really good. <laughs> so it's very hard to predict the difference. Uh, and I think that the being six feet eight or taller is a, just a really unique marker. Right. I think that this kind of leads into um, another another topic that you you went to, like why some uh, you know, like you mentioned, you know, baseball in the Dominican Republic, or apparently like uh, water water polo players in the East Bay, and then the example uh, you gave in the in the book is uh, Korean women golfers. Like, what is it? So, uh, what is it about that uh, culture, community, economic environment that they live in that uh, you find? makes uh has has resulted in so many so many people getting to such high levels of success in that area yeah the korean the korean women golfers are just such an amazing example it's incredible though if you look at the numbers um as a prelude to that if i can back up a second another example in the book is norwegian cross-country skiers right and so as economists we can look at norwegian cross-country skiers and it's sort of very obvious you're talking about a natural advantage and a comparative advantage, right? So it's just easier to become a cross-country skier if you're from Norway than it is to become a tennis player from Norway or than to become a cross-country skier if you live in, you know, if you grew up in Venezuela. So that's obvious. Straightforward economics of comparative or natural advantage explains the dominance of cross-country skiers in um, in Norway. But the dominance of Korean women golfers is really amazing. It's fifth, they've won half. There was a 10 year period recently where they won more than half of the major championships in all of golf. And um, this is in a country, it's like one of the most crowded countries you're going to find. Seoul is one of the most crowded, where many of the women who've won these championships grew up. They grew up in the city of Seoul, which is one of the most densely populated cities in the entire world. If you drew a, the area of a golf course in the middle of Seoul, Korea, you would actually have 10,000 people um, in expected value if you just randomly did it in the city. You'd have 10,000 people living where that golf course could be. So it's not a golf con conducive place at all. And it was just a myriad of interesting economics factors that are not having that have nothing to do with natural advantage. So it's there's there's a couple of cultural things that really play in here. One is Korea has the most miserable child, overworked children in the world. By culture, Korean kids work incredibly hard, in mostly in school, but at other things as well. And and this, I'm not just making this up. I mean, they do people do international surveys of the happiness of children and Korean children are the most miserable in the world. And that's driven by, they have a, that one of the highest savings rates in the world. So South Korea has shown as a country, a real tendency to be willing to delay gratification. And so kids work really hard. Well, so why only the girls go on to become great golfers? The men, there's, there's very few men who've been successful golfers from Korea. And the answer, I think, comes down to another cultural issue in Korea, which is Korea has about the biggest gender pay gap in the entire developed world. Japan is, a, is, is in the same ballpark. Um, so Korean girls are sitting, 
you know, they're making choices. Should I invest in sports or the labor market? Well, a Korean boy might think, well, I'm going to go on to be a lawyer or an engineer or something like that. And a Korean girl can go on to do those things, but she's going to, she's doing it. I think the numbers are like a 40% discount in terms of expected pay relative to a man. So, um, that that set of factors really led, I think, to the the growth of of women golfers. And then the thing that really then took it to the next level, and this comes back to the Dominican baseball players and to the East Bay um, uh, water polo players, is once you get kind of a hero that that begins the network of people, that makes a big difference. So Siri Pak um, was the first woman in Korea to win a major championship. And a lot of the ones who went on after her to be successful cited her as motivation. It's not quite the same in the book I go into, I think the network effects and this mentor effect is even a bigger deal to explain why Czech women are so great at tennis. And that really Martina Navratilova's influence there is amazing. And then the other thing that I think uh, that makes a big difference in the Czech tennis players that kind of matters in, in the Korea with the Korean golfers, but not quite as much is exactly those, those sort of n- network effects, if you will, from competing with one another, right? So, you know, the thing about being a golfer is you can just go out, you don't necessarily have to play with other girls your age, but if you're a tennis player, the thing that makes Czech tennis players so Czech girls so good at tennis is other Czech girls. And along the same lines, I think what makes East Bay water polo players so good is other East Bay water polo players. And and, and I'll just add one non-sports thing to that. This is, you know, this is everything I've just described is sports related, but these, but it goes way beyond sports, right? These same exact networks evolve sometimes not in for natural reasons in the case of like california wine growing that would be a comparison with the um that would be a a apt comparison economically to norwegian cross-country skiers and sometimes sometimes not for these natural reasons but just other networks build up so the czech effect the czech tennis players and kind of the history there and just historical accident and then uh as um uh, martina navratilova that's pretty similar story to what happened in Silicon Valley, where you had Stanford engineers laying the groundwork, and then Hewlett and Packard came along, and then other people started trying to emulate Hewlett and Packard and so forth. Right, and then once they're all there, learning from each other, hiring each other from their companies to their startups to the big firms, that's kind of that mutually reinforcing uh, thing that goes on until until rents get too high that no one can afford to live here. But at least at least so far, it's still going. <laughs> Yeah, agglomeration is the term we often use in economics, and agglomeration applies to Silicon Valley startups, but it also applies to Czech girls playing tennis. So um, another another theme of, of this show sort of is to, is uh, the platform economy, which I know is one of your research areas as well. So um, tell us why, against our instincts, we should really love ticket resellers. Harry. <laughs> Great question. Um, look, we we love as economists, we love to allocate goods to the person who values it the most, right? So if I have a ticket to a sporting event and I'm only 
willing to pay $100 for that ticket and somebody else is willing to pay $300, we can make everybody better off if I sell that ticket to the other person for, say, $200. Resale is good. We see it in used cars. We see it in um, all sorts of junk on eBay. And so reselling tickets is great. And for some reason, the ticket resellers have a bad reputation. Now, there are a couple of reasons why that might make sense. Um, more recently, it's because the bots go in and steal all the good seats, and I can understand why people are frustrated with that. But historically, I never really understood the anti-ticket scalper mentality. These guys were, you know, ticket scalpers or ticket agents or whatever. They're just helping to move goods from people who value them less to people who value them more. And that's a really valuable thing to do. Sure, occasionally somebody buys a counterfeit ticket, and that's not a good thing. But overall, it's all about resource allocation. Used markets, moving things around from people who value them less to people who value them more. These are what you know we as economists call gains from trade, and they're great. And tickets is a great example of where they can really uh, make everybody better off. And they also, I mean, some research, in fact, I think one of your colleagues at Stanford um, studied, you know, tens of thousands of, of tickets and some research that I had done a while ago. So I, I, can't, I don't recall his name at this moment, but um, I think he showed that more than half the tickets that he was studying were sold at below face value. So I, I'm with you there that I've always been sort of, um, you know, bewildered why people don't like uh, ticket resellers or, or the pejorative term ticket scalpers, um, because often you'll be able to buy a ticket um, for really cheap and go to some event that you might not have gone to otherwise. Yeah, I mean, if the seat's going to sit there empty otherwise, everybody's, you know, the team is better off if somebody's sitting there cheering. It is true there's a, this, this gets into behavioral economics, of course. There is kind of a, a mental um, discount to selling your ticket below face value. That's, the teams think that's a really bad look when people are selling their tickets below face value. And people don't like to admit they lost money, but still reselling tickets for below face value is a, it's great. I mean, it's better than selling it for zero, right? Yeah. And that was one of the, um, when StubHub was started, in fact, I think it was started by two Stanford business school students. Um, their, their pitch was when they went to the teams initially, they thought that the teams would be interested in StubHub because they said, well, we're going to help your season ticket holders feel like they have sort of insurance. They're going to buy a season ticket and then know that if they can't go to some of the games, it's easy for them to unload the, the ticket through StubHub to someone else who wants to go. So they're more willing to buy a season ticket than they would otherwise. And But the response was exactly what, what you were saying, uh, which is that uh, the, the the teams initially were like, no way, this is horrible, and you know, and 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 we don't like like our brand to be devalued by low ticket prices. Um, but also, we want to make the profit off of the off of the higher price tickets, and you know, we don't like that happening with the, with the scalpers. Exactly. I mean, it's like you know, it's predictable that air that these guys wouldn't want their tickets to be resold because look at airplane, look at um, the airlines is is an obvious comparison, right? I mean, it's a very similar thing. It's a seat for a period of time, and airlines, um, absolutely, 
don't allow you to resell your ticket, and that's an important part of their business model. So airfares go up as the flight approaches, whereas in resale markets, um, in tickets, for example, prices go down as the game approaches. And um, that's problematic for the, the team owner's business model if, if resale is allowed and people can just hold out and buy later at a lower price. So um, the, the, the owners of teams would like to become like airlines and just ban resale and capture all the rent themselves up front. But um, let's hope that doesn't ever get to that, although we've moved a little more in that direction than I would have liked. So just to be, I guess, the, the devil's advocate, like, you know, the if they were able to capture more of the value themselves, um, the, the owners or, or the, the let's say, the, the entertainment and sports business in general, um, I mean, obviously, some of it would go to the owners and would just be profits. But you could imagine, you know, some of it could also mean they could have, like, higher quality facilities in the stadium. They could pay... I mean, I guess no one really cares whether they pay the best athletes more, but maybe they could pay, you know, the other athletes more like the sort of, you know, if there's more money sloshing around going to um, the the people in the business versus just the resellers. I feel like especially in the case where, like you said, you mentioned bots. And I think that's that's the one thing where I feel like, oh, you know, you can never get a ticket to something you really want because, you know, they'll list it at some price. And then, uh, you know, what I think this happened even before it was automated, you know, people would jump in and just, just buy them all up if they knew they were good and then, and the resell them. And that doesn't seem like it's adding a whole lot of value because they're actually buying it because they, they kind of knew it was going to be resold. So I'd sort of rather that go to the teams, not that I worry about the owner's poverty very much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't worry too much about the owners either. I mean, I can see your point. The bots are a real problem. So I don't want to understate that. That's a more recent phenomenon. And it is a real issue because it's hard to hard to figure out how to. But having said that, at the end of the day, what I don't like about the teams having control and the bots, while the bots may may make everything a little bit more. um, What's the right word? It adds some frictions to the market, but still. The teams want to limit resale in a way that's going to keep trades from happening that are in that are clearly efficient. And that's, I guess, where I would draw the line. Right. That's why I'm still on the side of ticket resale, even in the world of bots, because at least people who want the ticket, who want to sell the tickets they've got can do that. And the people who want to who are willing to pay for tickets can go ahead and pay and enjoy the event. And you sort of see the teams recognizing this, that same phenomenon. And so I think the Giants were one of the first teams to start reselling tickets on their own site. So they, they've, and that's something that, that StubHub and others have offered as a service to the teams is look, they'll build out the secondary market, but it can be through the team site. And so that way the team has, I don't know, more control of the ticket is, is, is really what they're looking for, but then they can, can you know, keep that, that face value price up in the resale if they want to, or they can get sort of, you know, two sets of, of purchasing fees, right? The, the, the initial sale and then the second sale. Um, and so you've, you've sort of seen that happen um, from some of the teams also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the teams are getting creative about ways to capture more of this. And of course that's driven by the issue that there's just 
so few, you know, there's just not enough teams. And, and so they have quite a bit of, uh, of market power. So you think there should be more teams? <laughs> That's an interesting. So, okay. So I realized as I said that, that I was opening a whole new can of worms. <laughs> you did. <laughs> That's chapter um, 10. <laughs> you know, I, you know, wouldn't it be, it would be interesting to think about whether sports in the United States would be better off with more of kind of like a relegation type system like they have in, in soccer um, in Europe. So think about what imagine, imagine if Major League Baseball were played where at the end of the season, the top AAA teams moved up to the majors and vice versa. And I think there would be something to that, wouldn't there? I'd like to see that. It would make things a little, it would add to add some competition and some incentives to uh, sports. And it would also not allow the team owners who've, once they've bought a team to free ride on the rest of the league. Like, you know, I'm, you're, you're in the East Bay, Dan. I don't know if you're an A's fan like I am, um, but the A's are now, you know, they, they went from being this scrappy money ball team to now they're kind of free riding on the, um, on the rest of the league, which is very unfortunate. If they were relegated, we, that would be an incentive not to do that, I guess. Yeah, and I do sort of an informal poll. I've been doing this for a couple decades now, and, and you're right. St my students desperately would love to see promotion and relegation in, uh, in, in their favorite sports in North America. And it's for the reason you said, that, that, that there's teams sort of at the bottom who don't try that hard because they know that they can't be relegated, and they, and they free ride. On the on on the rest of the league, so that's interesting. Now the NFL has sort of solved that a little bit by forcing the teams to spend a minimum amount of money on their players. That's that's pretty close to the maximum they can spend. They sort of made this tight tight band that they have to spend in, and the NFL does tend to have better competitive balance than than in other sports. So yeah, that isn't the same as promotion and relegation, but it's solving at least one of the issues related to that. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, asking the baseball, forcing the baseball teams um, to change, some of the baseball teams that are free riding to change their behavior, that's going to have to come from fans not going to games, which we're already seeing. If you've been to an A's game lately, um, you, you've seen that. And the other, the other way is internal pressure from either the types of rules you just talked about or other pressure from the other owners to say, hey, you know, you got to pull your weight here. So, how did this system get get going in uh, in soccer and not and uh, like I mean, if you you know if you, if there's an argument why the owners wouldn't like it, then I could see why it wouldn't go anywhere. But how did it get started in soccer if that, if it's something that's not necessarily in interest in the interest of the owners as a as a collective? That's a great question. I don't know. There must I mean the answer is surely historical accident, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. it's going to be part of it, yeah. Part of it is that the, the leagues, the soccer is, is a very old sport in, in Europe, and teams were playing each other sort of before there was a lot of power at the league level, and the ownership sort of joint venture wasn't very powerful, so they sort of, you, you play better and you get to move up and you, you play worse and you drop down. And, I, and then I think exactly what Paul says, it's, once that was in place, it, it stuck. You know, as yeah, I mean, the hysteresis is, the hysteresis, or sorry, we're talking to people who aren't all economists. The, um, <laughs> this, the inertia, once these systems start, is obviously pretty dramatic. I mean, the Super League in soccer tried to make, tried to basically do what 
American major league sports have done. And it was a total nightmare, right, to try to make that change. So if you start that way, you can keep it going. But making the change from one type of league, adding relegation or getting rid of it is really hard. Yeah, just too many entrenched interests and fans are used to things working a certain way and just hard to hard to make a change for whether it's good or bad. Well, I mean, and in North, the North American leagues, they, they're one of the reasons, that, you know, the owners say, well, they make a major investment in their facilities knowing that they're at the top level of whatever the sport is. And if they were to drop down to a lower level, they wouldn't, you know, they, they, they wouldn't have made those investments in the first place. Um, in the in the English Premier League, they sort of solve that problem. They have sort of a soft landing when you drop out of the top top division into the into the next division. You you still get some of the shared media payments for a little bit, so it's not such a harsh <laughs> falling off a cliff. You know, it, it's not as harsh, but obviously it's the the um, variance in income relative to what you can predict for a major sports team in British or in uh, European soccer is much higher than for most major sports teams in the U.S., right? You can pretty much predict your NFL revenue uh, over the next few years. You, it's much harder in European soccer, but you're right. They've sought, they've, they've tried to manage that. So it's not, you know, as dr- dramatic as it otherwise might be for the owners. So moving on, um, the title of your book is uh, how to throw away $580 million. So, uh, so I, I'm anticipating getting that in the next year or two, one way or another. So once I get it, how do I throw it away? <laughs> where, Very where practical you, economics advice for realistic where, situations. Where are you going to be? Where are you going to be getting the $580 million? Um, I'm just dreaming. Yeah. Intriguing. Um, Maybe podcasting. It's going to be big soon. Podcasting is going to make me uh, a billion dollars that I can then invest in sports. And the barriers to entry on podcasts are so strong that your competitive position will clearly, clearly hold up. Right. Um, So the $580 million example, that's my calculation of how much money was burned when the NBA had a strike at the beginning of the, is it 2011-2012 season? And and the broader point there is, and again, this goes way beyond economic, way beyond sports. It's the broader point in economics of what of the both the good and the bad that can come from relationship-specific investments, right? So the NBA and its players desperately need each other. The pie from the two of the two groups, those two groups working together is so much bigger than either one can get, at least in any reasonable time frame with any other partner. Right. So there's if the NBA teams fired all the players and brought in next level players, nobody would watch. And if the NBA players went off and said, we're going to set up our own league, they don't have the. They don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the relationships with arenas, with whatever. So both sides just desperately need each other. And um, that's great because there's so much value from this relationship. But it also is just constant temptation to try to grab a bigger share. And, And this goes on all the time in other sorts of labor negotiations between unions and so forth. It also goes on between 
partners in all sorts of business relationships where, you know, somebody has um, a part of a store and, uh, you know, a brand is, is, in, is entrenched in some portion of a store and they're both doing both the store and the brand are doing much better than if they went their separate ways. And each side is always trying to change the arrangement to be better in their in their situation. So in this particular case, the collective bargaining agreement ended and and each side was just trying to get a better deal. And and it was it becomes a game of chicken. So there's no question that they should sign a deal. But every game they every day they didn't sign a deal. Millions of dollars were just burned into the burned. And by burning, you know, I really mean basically the the everybody was worse off. The fans went and did other things instead of watching the game. But by revealed preference, they would have been happier watching the games. The players earned zero instead of millions of dollars over the course of the year. And the, and the owners, of course, just lost huge amounts of money. So you really are just throwing this money away. And it all comes from um, the economics, basically, of bargaining and of relationship-specific uh, investments. So, so that's, how you throw, that's how you throw your money away, Peter. You get really <laughs> high so up with uh, somebody and, and fight with them over the money. So, so why do you think we see lockouts and strikes in sports? We don't see a ton of them, but we, we've seen, you know, there have been dozens of them over the, over the decades. Yeah, I think I would put it, I think I would focus it the way you, you started to focus it. And that is the incentives for both sides to come to a deal are so great that you actually don't see these very often at all. Um, you know, the baseball lockout this year ended very quickly. Um, almost no money was lost. The full season is being paid, played. So um, the incentives to strike a deal are so strong that they almost always get struck. I think that's, that's the main insight. Now, the problem is, you know, sometimes they don't. And the reason for that is, you know, it's classic economics where if I, if my next best option, it's all about your next best option, right? It's opportunity cost. And if your next best option, if I think that um, if I'm the players and I know that the owner's next best option is really bad, I'm going to try to grab a bigger slice of that pie. But if they call my bluff, we're all losing. So it doesn't happen that often, but people are, people are greedy, as we all know, and it does happen sometimes. Reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Chris Blattman's book on on war that uh, just came out uh, on you know the economics of war. It's sort of a similar situation. Like you know, if you look at all the things people could fight over and you know feel aggrieved over, and you know they each want a piece of land or you know uh, have have various disagreements you know between countries, there could actually be a huge number of wars. They're actually quite rare. They're obviously tragic and horrifying when they when they break out, but relative to the number of disagreements where, you know, there's a chance, there's always that chance to go down that, that path. Um, but most of the time humans are actually remarkably good at like sorting things out. You know, we never get as big of a piece of the pie as we we'd like, and we resent that, but then, you know, relative to that, uh, that mutually destructive alternative, uh, it, uh, we, we say sort of often do make it work out. Yeah, I think that's exactly the, that's a perfect parallel. 
um, a, a higher stakes one. <laughs> Us not watching the NBA for a few months was not really the end of the world, whereas wars are the ends of lives. But I, the, the underlying economics is the same, even though you don't, that's, I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing up that example because it gets at the theme we started with, which is economics is everywhere, even in war, right? The starts of war, it's game theory or however you want to think about it. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I'm noticing in our discussion is that this is almost always, um, you know, almost everything we've talked about has had more of a game theory element than a kind of, you know, supply and demand meeting element. You know, we talked about StubHub and tickets and, you know, there's a, you know, supply and demand diagrams would, would maybe tell you, given that everyone can trade, you know, what's the point at which trade would occur and stuff like that. But um, the really what we were talking about was sort of the strategic logic of, you know, do I let someone else make that trade? What are the, you know, what are the gains? There's, again, there's, you know, some, some yeah, there's some mutual benefit, um, but, but different incentives for different parties to, to intervene in the transaction in different ways. Yeah, no doubt. A lot of the economics in sports is game theory um, because it's about formations of leagues and partnerships. It's about strategy within games. So there's a chapter in the book that's all game theory about basically mixed strategies. When should I throw which pitch? When should I rush the net in tennis and so forth? And it's just, that is, there's no, you know, that's just game, that's game theory. It's economics because economists have grabbed, all, have imperialistically grabbed game theory, but it's just game theory. Yeah, the other, um, maybe as the last topic, the other instance you, you talk about game theory a fair bit is the, the idea of the prisoner's dilemma and uh, the use of performance enhancing drugs. So why don't you, uh, why don't you talk us through a little bit of, uh, of uh, how you see that working? In many ways, I find this to be the most depressing chapter um, because the, the um, takeaway is if you think somebody might be cheating there's probably a reason to think that. <laughs> or if you think somebody might be telling, if you think somebody's saying something, stop and ask whether they uh, are telling the truth or not. So it's, a, it's unfortunately, it's the type of thing that gets us called, the dis, that gets us economics to be known as the dismal science. The basic idea is in a world with doping and very imperfect abilities to catch people, you get a, I mean, just the most classic prisoner's dilemma situation. So in the Tour de France, for example, um, back when Lance Armstrong was was dominating and there were a lot there was a lot of ability to use steroids without being caught. I mean, it, it was a given that whoever was winning the race was using steroids because if winning steroids were enough to make somebody who was almost good enough to win good enough to win. So the temptation is just so strong and somebody's going to do it. And then once somebody does it, pretty much everybody who's going to be competitive has to do it. And, and that's what a prisoner's, that's what a classic prisoner's dilemma is. Everybody's worse off because now we've all taken steroids, but the outcome is pretty much the same, right? So it's just- yeah, Still only get one winner at the end, right? But, but the part I find the most depressing is not just the prisoner's dilemma, but what we as economists refer to as cheap talk and that is just the lying right so if you lance armstrong until the you know for years just not only was and alex rodriguez another great example they not only were lying about 
stardust, but they were just like incredulous and acting all offended. <laughs> it was just the, you know, it was, it was a, a great, um, they were in, they were indignant about anybody even asking this question, which in retrospect, or even at the time, it was obvious that the question should be asked. So um, you, you really, sh it's a br broader lesson there where if you're watching SportsCenter and you have a athlete who's saying something, you should often stop and say, well, if the person were not telling the truth, would they have an incentive to say what they're saying right now? And more often than, than you'd like, the answer is yes. This tells, the fact that this person is saying this tells me there's no reason, there's no credible reason to believe it's true. So do you think the, the leagues um, have a real motivation to, to fix this problem? To the extent, I mean, there's always going to be a sort of technological arms race between, you know, new ways of doping, new ways of masking the doping and, you know, how to, how to keep up on the testing. Um, but, but even within that, like, how much do they, do they really care? Yeah, what it's, a great question. it's a great question because until, you know, for a long time, I think we, I, I wasn't in the room, in the room at the league office, but it based on behaviors we saw, you have to believe that in the 90s, Major League Baseball knew their players were largely taking steroids and didn't do much about it. So only when it became a public relations issue did they really have to worry about it. And I'm not sure why it even be. So an alternative view would be to just say, well, if people want to take steroids, they can. And then we don't have to worry about policing it, which makes things a lot easier. The, um, the example I give in the book where a sport gave into that isn't about drugs. It's about, um, it's about cheating in tennis. I, I don't know if any, if, uh, it's a relatively little known fact that, um, in college, if a, if a serve hits the net, it's not a let or a do over as it is in pro tennis. And that's because the, because college men, it's only men, men call their own lines in college tennis. And the incentive to call a let after an ace is very strong and very hard to, and it's very hard to police. So they've just said, okay, forget it. If the ball hits the net, it's good. Whether it's, uh, you know, no matter if it goes in, it's still good. So, you know, you can just throw your hands up. And I, I think baseball kind of implicitly did that for a while. And then they decided there was a real PR problem from, from this. And so then they started policing it again, but imperfectly. I mean, you just saw what happened to Fernando Tatis last week. You know, people think, oh, they've got steroids out of baseball now. They're testing all the time. There's, I, I have no idea how many current baseball players are using banned substances, but I'm sure it's not a tiny number. It may not be a huge number. I have no idea, but I doubt very much that it's a tiny number. Well, and, and, I, and I think building on what you said, baseball, Major League Baseball was trying to deal with the PR at the same time. They loved the, the home runs. I mean, you know, the, the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa race was huge for baseball. Um, you know, the, the, the chasing the home run record. And then, of course, Barry Bonds, even breaking Mark McGuire's record, was huge for baseball. And there's even, you know, there's peer-reviewed research showing that that demand was up, that, that attendance was up, that viewership was up. And so I think baseball has this weird sort of cognitive dissonance that they have to, that they sort of played, which is, well, 
we want to show that we're we're not interested in steroids. We want to show that we're fighting the use of steroids, but at the same time, maybe we don't want to stop it too much because of all the excitement surrounding all all the hormones. Absolutely. But that's not limited to baseball. You would probably at various periods say the same, certainly about the organizers of Tour de France or of um, major track and field events, right? That they're conflicted because these people who are taking banned substances are so much fun to watch. I suppose it also, you know, reflects a a conflict among uh, audiences as well, right? There's sort of, you know, if we, if we instantly lost interest in a, in a sports contest, if we knew that people were, you know, pumped up on something, then that would, that incentive, you know, if we stop buying tickets right away, stop watching the watching the uh, the broadcast, then that would that would hit the the leagues pretty hard. But if it's just kind of ambiguous enough that we were like, oh, I know some guys are doping, but wow, look at that guy hit. There's kind of uh, you know, I think the the review, you know, you mentioned the phrase revealed preference, right? That's one of our economics phrases that comes up a lot, right? You, there's what you say you want, and then there's what you show you want by by what you do, and what we do is we watch it. Um, and we, when we are fans and watch the shows, buy the tickets, and as long as that ha- that's happening, then no matter how much we act shocked and offended that that some people are doping, it seems like the incentives, both for the teams to let it happen and the players certain to do it, will will kind of remain. Yeah, yeah, and you know, all of this is of course much more prominent over time because the money is so much bigger than it used to be. So the incentives to cheat, you might have been willing to say, oh, I'm not going to cheat. It's just not worth it. Back if you were a baseball player 50 years ago, made the equivalent of $100,000 today because you could go out and find a salesperson job that paid almost the same. But if you're going to get paid $15 million, well, there's a lot of incentive to go ahead and cheat. You know, and we see that in college sports, I think, the, the prisoner's dilemma play out um, amongst the universities when they're, they're, you know, when they're recruiting athletes and they want to get the best and they maybe turn a blind eye to the under the table payments, um, that, you know, are what what have been happening for, well, for a hundred years in college sports. Um, you know, it's, I think it's the same sort of, of, of trade-off that, that, that the schools are making. Um, Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the benefits of this name, image, and likeness stuff is it's taking those under the payment, under the table payments and putting them above the table. Because basically now a car dealership that used to be a, a used to be a booster and would pay somebody under the table can now say, hey, come here and we'll give you this much money and you don't really have to do much, which is really the equivalent of an un, of one of the old under the payment tables, uh, under the table payments. Um, and, you know, I think people feel a little squeamish about that in, col- in the college context, but boy, I, I don't. <laughs> Let and I haven't seen it change the demand yet. You know, it's been one year since the under the table payments for name, image, and likeness are now above the table, as you said. It's been one year and, and we haven't seen any sort of change in demand. The other, the other thing from an economist perspective that's just great in college sports is the portal. You know, as a labor economist, I hate labor not being allowed to move around and this portal that's allowing them to transfer schools pretty much at will is um, 
you know, a great, as we do in most any other labor market is a great thing to see. And I guess in all those cases, it's a little bit of the, the, in this case, the, the owners or the managers of the universities, which are kind of making money off of sports revenue, which hopefully, although I've never been totally clear how much is subsidizing the, the academic mission of the university, but now that's being uh, given to the, the student athletes who obviously put their, their bodies and, and efforts on the line for us in sort of more of a, a little bit more of a free market kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I agree. I hope that all the name image and likeness stuff doesn't mean that we're going to get less money. <laughs> we're going to get less money or, or some of the, that we're going to get less money here in, uh, the academic side of the house. I don't, I don't, I don't worry too much about that. It still seems like the right thing to do, but you're, you're right. We have this old history of sports, certain sports subsidizing the rest of the school. Although I think mostly it's the opposite, right? In many colleges with many sports. I don't think the sports coaches ever would admit that, but, but certainly from the other side of the house, again, it does seem sometimes seems a little bit like that. Were there any uh, any topics that you were excited to to cover that you didn't get a chance to get to in this book? Um, actually, one chapter I started to write and never quite it never came together was as a labor economist. Uh, very exciting for me, and that was thinking about the creation of a team. Right, so the economics of creating a team is not that different from the economics of creating a, a business organization. Uh, think about a, a baseball team. You can't have nine uh, Jake DeGroms playing in a given day, even though he's the best player right now. You have to have, you have to, the, the, you have to look for the complementarities rather than just the individual parts. And um, the, the underlying economics of that is certainly very interesting. There's some research along those lines. There's a nice paper in the Journal of Labor Economics um, from a few years ago that looks at basketball players and trying to figure out which ones are um, good in traditional metrics and which one are good in making their teammates better. So um, those are some topics that I think are still are still um, worth exploring. Somebody should write a senior, tell your students to write senior theses on those. Sounds like a plan. All right, I guess we're, we're just about out of time. So um... Again, uh, thanks, thanks, Paul, for coming. So this is Paul Oyer talking about his new book, An Economist Goes to the Game. And uh, if you found any of this uh, conversation interesting, um, I encourage you to, to grab the book. It's, it's super well written, um, just really, really draws you in. You don't even have to necessarily care about each specific sport to, to get how uh, fascinating the ideas are and, and see how it extends sort of across the whole, the whole world of sports and, and far beyond. Um, so, Paul, thank you very much. And Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Peter. Thanks, both of you. And thank you for that very nice summary. I appreciate that. It was really, it was great talking to both of you.